The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Premier League returns. Spurs 6, Leicester 2. We're asking, will sun shining end Rogers' reign? And is Brendan the name in his own envelope? Also, we'll hear what Deserby will bring to Brighton. We'll hail Fulham at Forest and we'll salute Arsenal. This weekend with the best passing numbers since Philip Schofield in the queue. All of that and more in this Totally Football Show. September the 19th, and it's a big hello to you, listener. Uh, Today on the Totally Football Show, we have for you Matt Davis Adams. Hello, Matt. Hello, James. Also with us, Jay Harris. Hello, Jay. Hey, James. And Sasha Gurionov, back from the Blenheim Horse Trials. Guilty or not guilty, Sasha? That's the question. (laughs) It was a lovely day out. It was. Okay, good. Excellent. Uh, Matt, you had a lovely day out, uh, well, evening out Friday to see Forrest against Fulham. We'll be talking about that. Jay, you were at Brentford. I certainly was. Yeah, which, yeah, was a significant game, many feel. Later on, we'll also be reacting to the Deserby to Brighton news when we're joined by the president of the Kensal Rise Deserby fan club, uh, James Horncastle. Look forward to that. Matt, I noticed you weren't actually at Forrest Fulham. No, I was covering it from TalkSport Towers, and uh, as I entered the building, uh, Mm -hmm. who should be coming out deep in what looked like a very jovial conversation, but Darren Bent flanked by Vanessa Feltz and Jane Middlemiss, so that was the high point of Friday evening for me. (laughs) Right, okay. Uh, What were they doing together? I'm not sure. I mean, they were just coming out the building, whether whether they'd been on TalkSport together, whether... Uh Whether Feltz had been on Times Radio, perhaps, or something else. Uh, but they certainly seem to be enjoying each other's company, so that was nice. Okay. All right. Uh, that's nice. I mean, all, all three lovely people, so why shouldn't they? I think. I'm not sure who the third one is. Who was the third one? Uh, she, Jane Middlemiss. She was like a 90s kind of, not kind of, she was a TV presenter. She was on the original Love Island with Lee Sharp and okay. Shine to Sharpie. But uh, I don't think it was reciprocated, if memory mm. serves. Right, that's fantastic content. You thought we'd struggle for content today. No, I was just—I felt bad because that feels like there's huge amount of material there, but I'm only dimly aware of. I mean, Darren Bent—I've got a notion of, but the other two, Vanessa Feltz was was famous in the '90s, wasn't she? What did she do, Vanessa Feltz? She was on Radio Two, but I think she's just left. Okay, maybe maybe comparing retirement notes with Darren Bent. Who knows? There you go. Nice. All right, well, let's check on what happened in some of the other big matchups this weekend. Friday, Villa beat Saints 1 0. Fulham won 3 2 at Forest. Saturday, Man City Wallet Wolves 3 0. Bournemouth got a 1 1 draw away at Newcastle. And Spurs beat Leicester 6 2. Sun coming off the bench to open his account for the season with a 14 minute hat trick. Sunday, Everton won West Ham 0 in the David Moyes derby. And Arsenal 3, year old tweet based banter 0 as Arsenal <laughs> trapped at Brentford. That means Arsenal stay top, a point ahead of Man City and Spurs. Fulham a sixth. West Ham, Forest, and Leicester are the bottom three, with Wolves perch just above. There are many places we could start. Jay, how about we begin at the Brentford Community Stadium and a very convincing win for top of the table, Arsenal. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Now Saka. 
Vieira. Oh, what a goal! What a moment! Vieira for Arsenal. We haven't said that for a while. I was really looking forward to this game for some of the, the surrounding narrative, as you've already kind of cheekily alluded to. Um, but I was a little bit... I think the kickoff time kind of ruined the game a little bit because every time Brentford have played a, a top six club over the last year or so, it's been an absolutely cracking atmosphere and it's normally been on a, on a Friday night or a Saturday evening and the whole kind of stadium has been behind them and it was just completely flat from minute one and I think obviously the 12 o'clock kickoff impacted that. Obviously the, the circumstances with the Queen impacted that. But regardless, you know, Ivan Tony had just been called up by England. That's like a massive moment in Brentford's history. He's the first Brentford player to get called up to play for England since 1939. So you're thinking, you know, this weekend against Arsenal, it's a chance to just kind of revel in that glory. And they just never got going. I think Tony had three touches in Arsenal's box. He was nowhere in the game whatsoever. Um, and Brentford just looked really flat. So it was a really kind of disappointing performance from them. But from Arsenal's perspective, to kind of go back and, and exercise those demons and, and just look like they're in complete control, I thought Saliba again was, was simply fantastic. And, and Vieira came into the side and, and did really well. So a really good performance for, from Arsenal. Mm. Well, I was going to ask that every big six club who've, who've been to the Brentford Community Stadium have had a really tough game, whatever the result, which really didn't happen for Arsenal. So that... You think the atmosphere, the kickoff time, is it possible that there's something else that might be might be deflating a little bit the vibe with the bees? No, I don't think so. I think the only thing that, you know, potentially um, might have had a, a tiny impact is, <laughs> uh, is Thomas Frank being linked with, first it was Brighton a couple of weeks ago, and then obviously on Saturday night it kind of emerged that apparently Leicester City's owners are, are keen admirers of him. Um, and I did ask him after the game if he felt like that had become a little bit of a distraction and, and obviously a typical manager's just going to say no, not at all. It's a, it's a, it's a compliment and stuff like that. But it, it, it's kind of a funny thing and it's something Brentford are going to have to get used to. Whilst they have all this success and, you know, Thomas Frank is getting all these plaudits and so is Ivan Tony and David Rea is getting called up to the Spain squad as well. It's going to get uncomfortable because other teams are going to try and poach them all. So it's something they, they kind of have to accept. Um, mm. But hopefully... Thomas Frank will still be in uh, at Brentford after the international break. Although I did notice that you described his lap of honour, which he usually does at the end of a game, as eerie the way that he was saluting the crowd. It was only eerie because he started off by himself and I've never seen that before. So you know, it's a case of, I wasn't trying to over-analyse it, but just in that moment I thought it was just a little bit bizarre because they always unite together and do it, whereas mm. he was very visibly... 10, 15 yards ahead of the rest of them. So it just looked a little bit strange. So, you know, in two weeks' time, if if the worst kind of happens, you'll look back on that and say, oh, well, it just ended up being a bit of a strange farewell gesture. Mm. But hopefully that won't happen. All right. Do, do you think another thing that didn't help is the uh, he switched back to 3-5-2, so it looked like bad old Brentford from, like, December, January last year, whereas I think against Leeds, they played 4-3-3, looked much more fluid. And here, again, they seem to be stuck for ideas. Is it Nurgold being absent injured or is it something else as well? Yeah, do you know what? The three-five-two um, point is a is a really good one to make, and it's something that Thomas Frank always does against top six teams. Like you kind of said, December to February time last year, they always played in a three-five-two, and it just felt like they became quite predictable. Teams knew that Ray was going to hit the ball long towards Ivan Tony, and it just felt like they didn't quite get the numbers up to support him. So then, obviously, Eriksson comes in. They switch to a four-three-three, look a lot more expansive, um, much better going forward. And he's kind of stuck with 4-3-3 in most games this season. And it felt like, 
reverting to three five two was very much a, a safety first kind of approach, but it just meant that Ivan Tony was completely isolated. Arsenal kind of had the the majority of the join midfield. Tierney was pushing up into those central midfield areas as well, and it just felt like Brentford were completely overwhelmed. They just couldn't get out of their half, which is which mm. was really strange to see. Not helped by David Rea's distribution as well. I, I felt. Um, that's my big tactical contribution. <laughs> Gunners are top of the table again with six wins out of seven. Goals, as you mentioned, from Saliba, Gabriel Jesus and Vieira. Not that one. Granit Xhaka, once again, impressing in his more advanced role. And also a 15-year-old coming on, accompanied by some fruity chants from the Arsenal supporters. <laughs> he was born on the 21st of March, 2007. Yeah, which is just incredible. It's it's a it's a month after Liverpool went to Barcelona to win two one, which incredible. is kind of like something that you know just happened in my adulthood very much. And like this child has just appeared, and yeah, he's going to be he's not going to be sixteen until next year. He had to use different changing rooms. Quite incredible. I think obviously a safe way to introduce him was ninety ninety second minute. You know, nothing was going to change. Mm, yeah. but, um, but I think at the same time, maybe I don't. I'm not sure quite sure why he did it in this game because I think. A lot of the talk about a 15-year-old boy playing, you know, in, in the Premier League has perhaps maybe taken away some of the attention from the fact that Arsenal themselves actually played very well um, up, to, up to that point. And I think it, it just shows the level of comfort that they were able to do that. You know, they went to a ground where they were really bullied last season, whereas this time they they reversed it. I mean, they scored off a corner, Xhaka put in a great chip, which made Janssen look quite stupid because he completely lost sight of the ball. And then the way they passed around Brentford for the third goal was absolutely incredible. From the back, you know, Saliba takes around Tony, and I wish maybe there was a bit more focus on that rather than, you know, the 15-year-old made his debut. Well, as you point out, it was pretty singular. He wasn't allowed to get changed with the Arsenal squad because he's a minor. He's younger than the Emirates Stadium. Ethan Wanieri. Mm. And also, Arteta's probably not too bothered if people aren't talking up Arsenal too much as long as his team are doing well and he's getting the results. And there they are, six wins out of seven, top of the table. Matt, how seriously are you taking Arsenal? Um, yeah, I think reasonably seriously. It, they seem to be the, the team of the top voice, four. Not that seriously. <laughs> well, they seem to be the, the team of the... You know, if you're looking at Arsenal, Spurs and, and Man United um, mm. to kind of challenge for third downwards then Arsenal are the team that are playing well aren't they which is which is the difference I still don't think we've seen the best of Spurs yet so yeah there's no reason not to take them seriously and also that you know they they lost fairly convincingly at Man United in their last Premier League game didn't they so the, you you're kind of waiting for them to, to do Arsenal stuff and then get beaten at Brentford as well but to, to be so emphatic victors here um, I guess tells us that maybe their mindsets changed but their next two Premier League games are home to Spurs and Liverpool so ask me again after those. All right, we will do. Next up, as you say for the Gunners, is the North London Derby. That's on the 1st of October, the beginning of an absolutely brutal month for Arsenal, who will have nine games across October. Spurs, Saturday, were involved in the weekend's most dramatic match, going behind to winless Leicester, roaring back to take the lead, then unleashing Son Heung-min, who promptly got his first goal of the season, then his second, and then his hat-trick. Uh, the result, a 6-2 win that leaves real doubt over whether Brendan Rodgers will still be in charge when the league resumes. Hmm. Uh, Sun Young min That's all. Just Sun Young min uh, Very let's... self-deprecating, isn't he? I noticed he said in his post-match interview that he scored three lucky goals, whereas I thought he scored he? Two, two of the goals of the season and then one slightly fortunate one. With different feats as well. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. No one... This season had had more shots without scoring 
across eight goalless games, 17 attempts in the league, and hadn't connected or hadn't uh, converted any of them. But scoring with three of his four efforts on Saturday, in fact, I don't know how significant this is, but he is the first player in the history of the Premier League to score at least three goals with four or fewer successful passes. I say in the history of the Premier League, that's since they started collecting individual game-level passing data in 2003-04. Beyond him, though, is it fair to say that Spurs weren't actually very good? Oh, come on, James. Um, yeah? Bentan cool for me. I mean, yeah. talk is talking about Son, but I thought when they had to ramp up the pressure... It was Bentancu who mugged Ndidi, uh, caught, yeah. uh, caught out the ward in no man's land. And also it's Bentancu who took us Justin to actually set up the um, the first song goal. So I thought, you know, when they had to, uh, I think they switched it on. Um, yes, I thought, you know, it seemed like Leicester were playing out of their skins, but they couldn't keep it up for the whole game. I mean, that's 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 what happens with struggling teams. And, uh, you know, I thought when it counted, the um, the class told. Also, I'm a little bit annoyed with Bentancu because I was considering bringing him into my fantasy football. And I realized Don't he never scores. Fantasy. Sasha. <laughs> Sorry? And here Don't I mention it. fantasy. I, well, I, I'll, sort of, I'll, I'll self-deprecatingly son style mention it. All right, I'll then. bring him in. And, but then I realized he never scores, so I didn't. So I bought in Morgan Gibbs-White. Oops. Um, Oops. So, yeah, for me, Bentancur, I thought, was key to this game. Excellent. Well, Spurs are on a 13-game unbeaten run in the Premier League. This is their joint best points tally at this stage of a Premier League season, level with 2016-17, when they ended up second. For Leicester... It's a very different picture indeed. Not only are they bottom of the table, they are worse than Derby 07-08. Crikey, we're joined now by the Athletics' Leicester man, Rob Tanner. Rob. Hello. Hello. What an ominous stat that is. Well, it is, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, I've got plenty. Uh, Let's see. Dropped 11 points from winning positions, have conceded more goals in their first seven matches than any other top-flight team since 1965. And possibly this one, one of the most indictable, if we're going to start talking about the manager, 25 Premier League goals conceded from set pieces since the start of last season. Since the start of last season. Crikey. Well, Rob, Brendan was openly talking about his job being on the line after this game. He says, whatever they decide, which way is it heading? I think it's inevitable, really. There's going to be a change at uh, at Leicester. I mean, these are problems that, as you pointed out with the set piece stat, I mean, this has been going on a long time. This isn't just this season. Um, they brought in a um, dedicated set piece coach now, um, but um, obviously he's going to he's going to need time to work with them. And uh, there was no evidence. I mean, and the profile of player you can't you know you can bring in a coach that can might be able to make tweaks and changes, but if the profile of the player isn't right, I mean a lot of the times they switch off or you know they they don't attack the ball or they don't take uh, responsibility. There just seems to, in that area there seems to be a lack of leadership, which hasn't been helped by the departure of Casper Schmeichel. Mm, well, absolutely. The, the whole business around the squad and the departures and lack of big name or significant arrivals, is there a definitive reason as to why the club have reined in the spending? Well, yeah, I think it's just because they've been overspending. Um, although revenue uh, did climb a little bit uh, in the last accounts, over a course of uh, the last few seasons under Brendan, also the, the spending has, has, has increased, uh, not just on new contracts for, for the key assets and their the higher earners now, but also um, the spend in the transfer market. I know they didn't spend, they only spent 15 million and recouped 70 million in this window, but the last summer window it was a record net spend for the club, 55 million, which was uh, on five players that Brendan Rodgers has now um, admitted are weren't 
brought in to be first team starters. They were backup players. Um, so, you know, I don't think the club could sustain that. It's not a club of, mm. of, of the status of Leicester. I mean, they're trying to punch their weight with global giants in terms of revenue streams and, and their fan bases around the world. Uh, but Leicester is a provincial club with a loyal local fan base, but not a big fan base. And so mm. they can't they can't sustain that sort of thing with the revenue streams that are coming in. Particularly if they were to get relegated from the Premier League. Yeah, it'd be absolutely devastating for the club. That would, I mean, it'd be an enormous bloke considering how far they've come since they last got promoted in. And um, for them to, it would be not just one step back, it'd be about a dozen step backwards for them. Mm. Who, who, do you think, who do you think Leicester have got lined up for, uh, for a replacement? Well, it's quite it's been widely reported now, but we heard last week um, Thomas Frank was the uh, man they admire. But whether they mm. could get him out of Brentford, whether he'd swap his situation at Brentford for the one you'd find himself in at Leicester, uh, you'd have to question that. Um, I know that their long succession plan was Graham Potter. Obviously, that ship has sailed now. So, um, yeah, Thomas Frank seems to be the one. But there's, there's, there would be other options. I mean, Sean Dyche is out of work. I mean, if you're talking about a man that's going to come in and... and make your team more practical and defend more stoutly then uh, he'd probably be the guy and he lives close in Kettering as well so it would be closer for him to home but um, yeah we'll have to see which uh, direction they're going but Thomas Frank is the one that we're hearing Rob it's Jay by the way Hi Jay how you doing? Yeah I'm all good you? Yeah I'm good mate First things hands off No it's just um, (laughs) I was going to say a couple of things actually firstly um, we were obviously both there on the, the opening day of the season and, and Leicester were, what, 2-0 up in the, the mm. 45th, 46th minute and it looked like, you know, you were cruising to what was going to be a pretty easy win and then obviously Brentford come back and, and get a draw and that's still your only point of the season and I think Brentford probably look back at that game now and think, well, we kind of missed up on a really good opportunity to win. But obviously, more importantly, from my perspective, I could understand if Thomas Frank wanted to go to a top six team um, and kind of challenge himself in the Europa League or the Champions League. But at this moment in time, I, f- I feel like Leicester would be a bit more of a sideways step. And, you know, you might di- disagree. But obviously at Brentford, he's got a, a squad that's primarily made up of players who are 23, 24, 25, 26. You know, you've got Ivan Tony, David Rea, players who are, can only kind of kick on and prove they've not reached their peak yet. Whereas obviously at Leicester, you've got a, a squad that's in need of quite urgent regeneration and, and top players who want to leave. So I don't quite understand why he'd jump ship especially yeah. at this point when you know I, I would be I would yeah I'd agree with you on on, on most of those points I, the only thing is I think um, I don't know what he's earning at Brentford but um, Brendan Rodgers is on something like £8 million pounds a year so uh, if money can also talks as well he would be handsomely yeah. rewarded uh, if he came to, to, to Leicester even with the financial break being put on at the moment there's also the the rest of the Fafana money that will be reinvested um, obviously because we've talked about how devastating relegation would be that the, the January transfer window will be key now and they've got their head of recruitment in finally from Southampton Martin Glover so um, you know that there, there are sort of pieces being put in place now around the club to try and rejuvenate them and uh, you might look at that and think well there might be an opportunity this is a squad that has challenged for European football and played in European football it has got international players in there as well but I, I, I would certainly have my reservations as well uh, Rob, Sasha, um, I have a question as well I mean you're talking about the devastating impact um, of relegation but I mean, I've been looking at the at how much they're paying in wages, and it seems to be like an Everton-style situation where they're banked on getting um, into Champions League effectively, uh, but have hit a glass ceiling and could, therefore can generate no more money. Therefore, you know they they can't spend. So 
Would it be fair to say that Leicester really, really hoped to get in the Champions League one of those two seasons when they finished fifth and not being able to do so had actually crippled them? It, well, it certainly had a major impact because um, Champions League money is, is far superior to Europa League and Conference League money. Uh, they definitely missed opportunities. Uh, but that's what I talk about, the potential. I mean, that, this is a squad that has hardly changed since then. And they, they were able to challenge in the top form. And Brendan had that immediate impact when he came in. His tactics, they, the players embraced them. Um, he's tried to change them now uh, this season. He's tried with these inverted fullbacks. Uh, and it hasn't really worked. It's left them so open uh, and vulnerable and confidence has been drained. So those players just need a lift, a, a pick-up. And um, whoever comes in to, to, well, if Brendan goes, I mean, he's not gone yet. I'm talking as if he's gone, but I feel like it's inevitable. Um, then it, they, they need, need a bounce. And you'll see perhaps players like Harvey Barnes getting back to that form. But that missing out on Champions League did have a blow on the finances. I, I mean, the only thing I'd say about the analogy with Everton is that a lot of what Leicester are doing now is for them to fall in line with UEFA's FFP. Uh, it's not like the club are, is crippled financially. Uh, they have got debts of £276 million with eight, which they say is manageable because they've obviously invested a lot in the training ground and now they've got a project at the stadium as well, which they're investing in. They've taken out another loan for that. But uh, yeah, I don't think the club is like in real crippling financial Situation. It's just FFP concerns that uh, they're on the UEFA watch list now. And if they aspire to, although it's a mute point this season, if they aspire to challenge for Europe in the future, they want to want to conform to those FFP regulations. Mm. All right. Well, first on their agenda, staying up five points from safety at the moment. Their next opponents are Nottingham Forest, of whom more very shortly. Rob, thank you so much uh, for bringing us up today on the situation at the King Power. No problem, guys. Anytime. I was just trying to think of uh, dog-related Leicester puns, but go I on, only, Matt. Well, I could only get Bark or Brighton. <laughs> ah, very nice. <laughs> very nice. Excellent. All right. Next up, a bit of Forest and Brighton. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. 
Sunday afternoon, Brighton announcing their new manager, the exotic-sounding Roberto Di Zerbi. Ooh. What's he then? On the line from Continental Knowledge HQ, it's James Horncastle. James. James. Yeah. <laughs> Di Zerbi then. What can Seagull supporters look forward to with Di Zerbi ball? Exciting high-risk football um, because, you know, he is someone who likes to invite their opponents onto his team and then play through them with kind of elaborate passing patterns. I mean, it started culture wars in in Italy, this style of football, because it goes against the grain. Uh, And, you know, you have, you know, some of the old school coaches who are now pundits like Fabio Capello, who tear their hair out when they see Dizerbi's teams trying to pass it out from the back um, and yeah, Capello often just says hoof it, get rid of it uh, rather than lose it in dangerous areas. But Dizerbi says he does that because he feels it brings advantages to his team. And I think he's changed the way a lot of people think about football in Italy um, because if you look at some of the criticism of Massimiliano Allegri, Um, at the moment at Juventus um, for his style of football, uh, which has been seen as negative, defensive, let's try and win 1-0, let's defend this league for half an hour rather than go and add to it. I think the backlash um, to that is in in, in some respects informed by people's experience of Deserbi over over the last few years. So obviously he was available after um, leaving Shakhtar um, because of... uh, the war in uh, in Ukraine and the the invasion uh, by uh, by Russia, um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why you know he was obviously there for Brighton to take. But I think he would have been on their list anywhere, um, just because he is he's seen as one of the most exciting young coaches in in, in Europe at the moment. Mm, a club talking about how good a fit he is for a team that had been moulded by Potter. Uh, the, the big difference is Deserbi teams actually score loads of goals. <laughs> they do. Um, they concede loads of goals too, um, mm. which is which is fun. Um, but no, I mean he is he is an athlete uh, when it comes to you know how he wants to play football um, and uh, likes to have lots of skillful technical players in his team. Um, you know you see that in in how he he builds his defenses you know he likes to have Brazilians there because you know Brazilians know how to play the ball um, so we've seen him you know over the years have a player like Marlon for Sassuolo and he takes him with him to Shakhtar Donetsk uh, he likes to have created number 10s who play with their socks down like Filip Juricic so he had him at Benevento and he made sure he signed him for Sassuolo as well he made Kevin Prince Boateng look so good that Barcelona signed him um, so, uh, and, and and a lot of the players that he had at Sassuolo went on to bigger and better things. You think of you know, players like Stefano Sensi, who went to Inter and became an Italy international. Um, you think of some of the players who were basically attracted to Sassuolo because they wanted to play that style of football and believe that Deserbi could improve them. Um, you know, players who were were coming from much bigger clubs um, like Chelsea. Uh, for example, in the, in the case of Jeremy Boga. So uh, I think that's one of the things that appeals um, to, to, to Brighton is that he's a coach's coach in the way that Potter was. He will, he will enhance players' careers. He will make them better. He will make them think differently about the game and how they've 
they've played the game up until now in their career. So yeah, it's it's exciting. I'm, I'm interested to see whether it works or not. Um, mm. Because, you know, I mean, uh, as I said, the, the criticism of him was that he was, you know, he, yeah, only a few weeks ago, Dezebi was in Manchester to 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 watch um, Manchester City train. Uh, he's a good friend of of Pep. Dezebi is from Brescia. Uh, Pep used to play for Brescia. I think when he started out in his career, he went to see Pep's Bayern. And you know, Dezebi would usually break off press conferences in Italy to say, "Hang on, guys, uh, Bielsa's Leeds are playing. I need to go and watch this." Uh, and, and that. There was quite a lot of blowback for that in Italy. Um, it was like, hang on a minute, what have you ever done, Roberto? You know, you you, you haven't won anything. Um, you know, you got Foggia into to the playoffs, but they didn't win in the third division. Um, Palermo went down. Okay, you got sacked after eight games, as every Maritz Zemperini manager gets sacked after eight games. Um, you did a good job at Benevento when you came in, but you, again, you didn't keep them up. And with Sassuolo, you got to eighth. You didn't get into Europe like Di Francesco did. Um, and there's this idea of him as being not arrogant, but having ideas above his station, you know, sort of delusions of grandeur. Um, and uh, and certainly for for some of the old school guys in in, in Serie A, they, they they wonder what all the hype is about. But I'm excited to see. I, I like the reasons he went to Shakhtar. He wanted to go abroad. Um, work with players in a different setting. That's a Champions League setting where you're having to prepare for games every three days, where you're in charge of a team which is expected to win the league. And he kind of delivered on on that. So, yeah, it's fun. I think it enriches the Premier League to have someone like uh, Dized being in, involved. Brilliant. All right, it is an exciting choice and quite the baptism of fire for his first game, which will be 1st of October away to Liverpool. James, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, James Horncastle will return on the Totally Football Show European edition uh, Tuesday lunchtime, in which we'll be discussing Augsburg beating Bayern, Monza beating Juventus, and Nice getting a player sent off after nine seconds. You can find out what Alvaro, James, Julian and Rafa think of all of that and more in Tuesday's European edition. James, thank you so much for today. Pleasure, guys. Back to the weekend and Forest then. Matt, Nottingham Forest uh, taking on Fulham on Friday night and you were commentating on this game. How was that for you? Um, not that enjoyable, I've got to say. Um, <laughs> I'm also slightly worried now after we've heard from Rob that we're going to get what happened with Bournemouth where they Leicester get rid of the manager, get the new manager bounce just in time um, to play Forest. But yeah, to have been 1-0 up against Fulham and 2-0 up against Bournemouth, both at home and losing them both in successive games is uh, extremely troubling. Obviously, Steve Cooper hasn't got his, his best eleven right yet. I mean, he's got two teams effectively of new players to try and integrate. But I thought the bigger problem here were the players who were left over from last season. Steve Cook playing in the Premier League, did a great job for Forrest in the second half of last season, but he looks like he's running through treacle whenever he's trying to catch somebody. Um, Scott McKenna, Forrest Player of the Year, I think he's struggling as well. Joe Worrell, the captain, was dropped for this game, so that's your, your whole back three. And, and Ryan Yates, um, who wore the armband in, in place of Worrell, also was culpable for a couple of the goals. So, yeah, really worrying times um, for Forest supporters in particular because none of them have an appetite to see the manager removed from his position and, and we've spent the last couple of weeks concerned that Steve Cooper might go to Brighton um, but yeah now I fear that his services might be dispensed with which would be an outrageously bad decision. 
because your owner has a history of that kind of thing. And certainly seeing his team taking the lead and then falling behind again, but this time with three goals conceded to Fulham in the space of, what, just six minutes, doesn't send the best of messages. Uh, on, on the subject of Fulham, how much fun are they, though? Yeah, really good. Um, Joao Palinha, he looks an incredible player, obviously scored a, an excellent goal here. Um, but some of their players, this, this is the difference, I think, with, with Fulham and Forest. And obviously part of this is because Fulham steamrolled their way through the championship and we knew they were getting promoted from sort of February, March time. But people like Bobby Di Cordova, Reed, um, and Harrison Reed in this game too, players who've been with them for a few years, Tossin who scored, they look as though they're capable of making the step up to the Premier League and impacting it more certainly than they did last time. Um, and as I say, that's what the, the Forest players who are left behind are not showing at the moment. Even, you know, Brennan Johnson started the second half, Forest 1-0 up, gets the ball played to him from Gibbs White. Should be an easy ball to control to be one-on-one with the goalkeeper to make it 2-0. Maybe things are very different then, but his touch is poor and the chance goes away. So, yeah, we need we need some players to start stepping up. Definitely some of the players who've signed um, either haven't settled yet or don't look like they're going to add particularly much to the team but it's difficult for Steve Cooper isn't it and you think even now oh international break chance to get to know everybody well they're all going off all over the world so he doesn't have that doesn't have that luxury what what he does have is you know a game against Leicester coming up which is absolutely massive and and some fixtures which on paper you'd think well these are opportunities for Forest to get some points against Aston Villa and Wolves and maybe even Brighton but we said the same thing about Bournemouth and Fulham at home and and they've ended Mm. up as our friend Nick Miller so eloquently put it the bed in both of those games Wow, yeah. <laughs> what a turn of phrase. Um, how was William, by the way? Oh, I love that guy. It's really good to see him back in the, in the Premier League. His corners were excellent. I think he, he could be a, a decent addition for Fulham too. And I'd like him to have a nice end to his career after what happened to him in Brazil and the, the fact that you know he left Arsenal having really underperformed but written off a load of money that Arsenal owed him, which was a gesture which um, no Arsenal fan seems to particularly remember or appreciate. But yeah, he could be effective in... You know, if he's starting playing for an hour or whatever, he's one of those players who the five subs rule helps, I think, because he won't mm. complete 90 minutes very often, but he won't have to. OK, Fulham are up in sixth place now, despite having a pretty uh, arduous fixture list to begin the season with. Marco Silva redemption continues. It's the first time since mid-April that Fulham have scored and Alexander Mitrovic wasn't on the score sheet. And beyond that, Duncan Alexander pointing out that Fulham have now scored almost half their total goals tally from their last Premier League campaign a couple of years ago. Remarkable. Sasha? As you remember, on the first podcast of the season, I was, uh, I was amazed by how Mitrovic is a Premier League player. And he continues to amaze me because uh, he, was, uh, he was involved in the build-up to all three goals. Uh, he kind of pops up kind of all over the pitch. Um, incredible amount of work and ground covered at an incredibly slow pace. But it, I don't know, it, it's... It's astonishing. It's like one of those cartoons where you see like, you know, an armchair in the corner of a room and you don't look at it and you look at it again. It seems to be slightly closer and it seems to be slightly closer. Before you know it, it sort of mugged you and robbed you off the ball and scored. Um, but an I, 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 <laughs> but it's, like, it's, it's like a bad piece of furniture. And, but, he's so, it's, it's, but it's incredible the way he ties the whole room together because all around him, I think he gives the ability for those sort of advanced midfielders to get forward. And that's what we saw against Forrest. I think they are at stages that kind of get pushed back into their own box and there's someone free on the edge. Um, but I think overall, I think Palinia uh, does a really good job in midfield kicking people. And they're very unlike previous Fulhams because they're extremely aggressive. I think such a pain to play against. Um, one thing I would disagree though on, and I think this game, um, they finally made the move, is, the, is Tosin. Uh, because I, when they went down with Toshin and Anderson at centre-back, I thought Toshin was particularly awful. I think this season, Toshin and Reem 
if they continue to play at centre-back, they'll continue to lead goals. I think this game, Reem finally moved out. Issa Diop actually took the ball out for one of the goals um, in the build-up. But if you look at Tosin's defending, his back heel on, on the um, Forest second goal was just absolutely criminal. I don't think, like, you should be, should be clearing the ball, not back heeling it back into the mixer. And if you want an example of how not to play centre-back, check out his highlights against Arsenal because I don't think he was, I think he was basically all at sea. So this is my one last criticism of Fulham that I have left as a centre-back. But I think if they sort that, sort that out, I think um, I think they'll stay up. Typical armchair punditry, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. While all that was going on, by the way, at the City Ground, Villa were beating Southampton 1-0. In a game which has been radly denounced as the worst of the season, John McGinn, who featured in it, saying, if I was watching that on the telly, I would have turned it off. Was it that bad? Did any of us yeah. watch it? Yeah, yeah, it was, Sash. Yeah, yeah. I, I, right. was, I was watching it on my phone as I was wandering around central London, you know, just having a look what the fuss is all about. And, um, yeah, in the end, I stopped paying attention. It was a complete and utter waste of time. I see. Saints have lost 13 of their last 19 games, but a big win that for Villa, only their second of the season. And a clean sheet, too. All right, uh, we'll move on. Still to come, we'll discuss Man City and the game with Wolves. Also, Everton's win, Newcastle, Bournemouth, that kind of thing. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. WSL returned this weekend, finally. Matt, you were in action once again on the mic for Aston Villa against Man City, which sounded like it was terrific fun. Yeah, game of the weekend, this, for me. Um, and, and certainly the biggest upset. Uh, Villa had played City four times in the WSL previously and lost by an aggregate of 17-0. So they'd never even managed a goal against them. Uh, but they've made some really good summer signings. Rachel Daly's the, the, the most obvious one. We saw it left-back for England, but Carla Ward, the Villa manager, insistent that she's a striker, which is where she's played for most of her career. And she scored twice here. Her first goal was absolutely beautiful. Um, but Ken Zadali in midfield's added something to them as well. So they're a team to watch this season, but City, my word, something's not right there. I'm not sure what it is. We talk about managers in trouble. I think Gareth Taylor might struggle to last the season. I mean, there must be a reason why Kira mm. Walsh, Georgia Stanway and Lucy Bronze have all decided to leave. But they kept trying to play out from the back and twice they were dispossessed. It cost them two goals and, and one of them was Steph Horton. And that kind of made you think maybe Serena Wiegmann made the right decision in um, in leaving her out of the Euro squad. But yeah, big problems for City, but a brilliant opening weekend. You obviously had Liverpool promoted from the championship last season beating the the champions Chelsea on Sunday too so really good opening weekend in the WSL Excellent Aston Villa 4-3 winners against Man City you can hear more about all of that in the Athletic Women's Football Podcast out on Tuesday night will they be discussing the Frauen Bundesliga in that do you think Mark? Well, they might because, you know, we, we're talking um, significant results, obviously Chelsea dropping points, which they tend to do on opening day, which is weird. And, and because it was so tight between they and Arsenal, just one point last season in it, people saying that's a significant result. Well, it, the Frauen Bundesliga kicked off on Friday night and Bayern Munich, who were right behind Wolfsburg last season, could only draw at home to Eintracht Frankfurt. And uh, I saw Wolfsburg put four past Essen on Saturday. Um, so that, you know, that might prove a significant result. In that title race, it's um, mm. Wolfsburg is basically Germany's team plus a couple of other um, superstars. I think there were six who featured in the final who started and it would have been seven if Alex Pop hadn't been injured in the warm-up for the Euro final. All right. Turn that frown <laughs> upside down. <laughs> uh, good. It's the 19th of September. Do you know what happened 30 years ago, Sasha? Ronnie, Ronnie happened. How would you know that? 
It was Ronnie Rosenhall at Villa Park, September the 19th, 1992. The game was goalless against Villa. Rosenthal pounced on a mistake by Chantille, rounded goalkeeper Nigel Spink, and then... Liverpool, oh, he's hit the bar! What a let-off for Villa, and what a miss by Rosenthal. Good thing for him there was no social media in those days. Everyone's been able to quietly forget about that moment. (laughs) As a Liverpool fan, Sash, is that something you you think back to a lot, or...? More is. Not, not, not really, but I think Rosenthal kind of summed up Liverpool's decline at the time because mm. he came back at the very back end of um, the last league-winning season in 1990, well, for 30 years. And he scored some crucial goals in that just to make sure that Liverpool you know, stayed ahead. And then I think they paid like a million quid for him or something. It was a big transfer. And then he wasn't really a first-choice player. And actually, I was looking at his stats. Apparently, he almost he played 97 games for Liverpool, which I think is absolutely astonishing because, let's face it, he wasn't very good. And in that period of time, I think you can see sort of Liverpool declining. And perhaps he was just one of those players that knocked around Liverpool at the time um, that um, that would play at the club uh, that's going downhill. His last goal for Liverpool was in the Merseyside derby. Uh, he scored against Everton. I think it was, it was last minute in 93. And at that stage, it was, I think, 14th against 17th. And that's how far Liverpool have sunk. So I think, you know, after, after he, he, he left... He left, I think, yeah, in, 19, in January '94. So you could actually say that maybe from that moment onwards, Liverpool's rebirth kind of started a little bit. So I think, <laughs> I think for me, he, uh, it wasn't obviously down to Ronnie, but he was almost a symbol of, of that declining Liverpool at the time for me. Crikey! Well, Ronnie Rosenthal, a man who scored a hat trick on his debut, but wouldn't end up being remembered for that. Oh no! Back to this weekend in the Premier League. Man City beat Wolves three nil. Bournemouth got a point away at Newcastle. Uh, against their former manager, Eddie Howe, while Everton, against their old boss, David, don't call me Moisey, Moyes, got their first win of the season. Chilling scenes post-game in the press conference with that with that unprompted use of Moisey by... I'm not sure who the unfortunate journalist was, but the... Um, yeah, I've not, see, I've not seen this. So no, someone calls me. him Moisey. Someone calls the... him Moisey, and uh, there's a smile, but the kind of smile that tells sure. you that... It, David finds absolutely that's, nothing. That's, that's a bit. That's, that's a bit too comfortable, isn't it? Moisey. <laughs> yeah. Hell, don't think we're that close. <laughs> Job swap with Brendan Rodgers for David Moyes. Why now? Why would you say that, Matt? Because Leicester need to be better defensively, and West Ham seems to have lost all the joy out of their play, and Brendan Rodgers can do that short term. Wouldn't that be a cool thing if, if, if instead of sacking a manager, you just had to swap with another team and come to some sort a little bit like the a little bit like the NBA? That'd be so yeah. cool. Is that happening we, in the NBA? We're trying to no, Americanize I mean, the Premier League, with, aren't we? Why not? With players in the NBA when they obviously trade. So I'll give you right, LeBron yeah. James if you give me Steph Curry. So it could be I'll give you Thomas Frank for Brendan Rodgers if you give me X player as well. Right. Plus a draft pick. Yeah. Well, West Ham going down here to an Everton side who hadn't previously won this season but have now uh, made it six games unbeaten, which is good, and picked up back-to-back clean sheets, and got a fine goal from Neil Mope. That's his first for the Toffees. Uh, Sasha, I know you want to give Everton some love. Let's hear it. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like to. I think um, the best thing about this game, maybe from Lampard's point of view, was that there isn't much to say about this game. Uh, i.e. we're not talking about terrible defending. Uh, they're talk- we're talking about Everton making it nice, boring, and solid. Because um, with Cody and Tarkovsky, they seem to have solved uh, the mess at centre-back. 
uh, Idrissa Gay coming back into midfield and Neil Mopi up front. So you basically have your spine. Um, and I think it's very interesting in this game as well that Cody was made captain. Cody who just arrived on loan. But I think it shows what an impact he has basically on everyone he comes into contact with. And I think with him and Tarkovsky at centre-back, they suddenly, like, even if you don't know what you're doing, Cody will make sure he tells you five times. So it's, it's suddenly that organisation comes in, the fact that they managed to almost completely nullify West Ham for large parts of the game, apart from the end, because I thought, you know, the, the substitutes that Moyes made actually did open Everton up a bit. And, you know, Ben Rama hit the, hit the post when he should have scored. There was a bit of a mess on one of the corners towards the end. But they saw this game out fairly comfortably, uh, which isn't the Everton that we came to know under Lampard. Uh, so I think, you know, the fact that this game doesn't really have you know much to talk about, I think it's probably moving in the right direction for Everton. Um, the fact that they picked up the first one of the season, going into the break, I think psychologically they're probably in a pretty decent place right now. Excellent. Well, as I mentioned, also up against a former manager, as Everton were with David Moyes, were Bournemouth who travelled up to Newcastle and even took the lead through Philip Billing. Uh, they've moved up to 12. Of course, Newcastle came back through the, uh, the penalty from Alexander Izak and as, as such are still winless since the opening day of the season, but the Cherries are up to 12th. Matt, you've got previous with, with Bournemouth and predictions. What's your take on the Cherries? Yeah, I did a commentary with Gary O'Neill once as well. I'm, I'm sure he doesn't remember that. I can't remember the game either. Um, but they look all right at the moment, don't they? I mean, it's, um, it's a long season. I still think that it will be a struggle for them. Um, but yeah, they they look okay at the moment. I don't. You don't seem to hear anybody linked with the job particularly, which is interesting. I know they're in the mm. middle of the a potential takeover, aren't they? But it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be much talk about somebody replacing um, O'Neill. So maybe he's there for the foreseeable future. But while we're doing managers under pressure, fascinated to see what happens with with Eddie Howe. We don't know what the Newcastle owner's um, attitude mm. towards firing managers is because it's not particularly impressive from Eddie Howe, is it? I mean, it was it, the most impressive thing he did on Saturday was get a change from his suit into his tracksuit in world record time. But to have beaten a newly promoted side who haven't done very well since then on opening day and nothing since, not a great look given the fact that they've strengthened basically every area of their team over the summer mm. and Bournemouth held them at bay fairly comfortably. He did sign a, a new long-term contract. Was it before the season or it was quite recently, wasn't it? Mm. So, so that kind of gives you the suggestion that they're going to give him a little bit of time because, I mean, if they, let's say, results kind of go on a downward spiral and he's kind of sat by January time, that, that that's not the best kind of reflection of their ownership, right? So mm. I think you're probably given a given the season at least you'd expect. Hmm. I, th- I, th- I think maybe Matt's a bit harsh with this one because I felt that Newcastle did ramp on pressure, but that this is a different Bournemouth now. I think almost a Bournemouth that takes pride in defending. They they bent, they bent, but they didn't break. Um, and I felt that the ho- even even situations where they give away the free kicks, like you know the one from which Trippier hit the post. I think there was a three or four tackles that went in before one finally succeeded in bringing down the Newcastle player. But I thought that sort of eagerness uh, to get involved and to get stuck in. We didn't see it amongst Bournemouth before. And I thought, yes, they rode the luck. You know, the woodwork was hit twice, but I thought they helped themselves as well. And, you know, they, they converted the chance that Billing had pretty good switch there. I think I think he had um, had a pretty, pretty good game. Um, and I think overall, they were much more sort of focused, I think, and, and cohesive compared to previous Bournemouth sides. Um, mm. I also found it very interesting because I was looking at the goalkeeper. I was like, oh, Neto, is that the Neto? Um, you know, Neto is, um, he's a 35 million euro goalkeeper. People tend to forget about this. You know, uh, everyone, you know the, the transfer bet- between uh, Juventus and Barcelona for Pjanic and Arthur, Arthur, who is currently um, 
on loan at Liverpool. The year before, uh, Barcelona did a similar thing on a smaller scale, 35 million between Silicon and Neto. So effectively, Neto went to Barcelona as a backup for 26 plus 9. Silicon went the other way. Neto played about 10 games for Barcelona. Now he went on the free to Bournemouth. And Silicon is now back at NEC Nijmegen. So I think, you know, Barcelona's creative accounting. Neto was part of the, um, part of the first attempt at it. And then they just went <laughs> on and on. So, uh, and again, like all these players at the time were 30 years old. But I thought, again, Neto played like a quality goalkeeper. And again, Maybe got away with one or two things, but his presence there, certainly in place of broken previous Bournemouth goalkeepers, I thought, you know, it's, it's good, good job on him. Mm, 30 million netto. Uh, he actually had more touches. <laughs> he had more touches than any Bournemouth player, which maybe gives you a little bit of a window into their approach to this match. I did say Newcastle winless since the opening day of the season, but they've only lost one game in that time. Uh, five draws, of course. Matt mentioning the prospective new ownership for the Cherries. Bill Foley, who's the owner of uh, NHL team uh, Las Vegas Golden Knights, uh, believed to be in charge of a consortium, hoping to take over at the Vitality Stadium. They're, as you might imagine from their kind of, from their location, they're quite a flashy bunch, the Las Vegas, Las Vegas Golden Knights. They play in gold helmets and they have, um, they have cannons and stuff like that. And uh, yeah. It's all quite fun. Bournemouth isn't for a treat, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if he gets in charge and starts working some of that magic, uh, woof. Anyway, oh, uh, we haven't talked about Wolves Man City, so let's do that. Grealish opened the scoring. Haaland got a second, moving past Mick Quinn in the most goals in the first seven charts. Nathan Collins found himself harshly sent off, I felt, for trying to kick a <laughs> hole through Jack Grealish's chest. And then after an hour, Phil Foden made it 3-0. Also significant, 10 of the 22 starting players in this match were Portuguese. There you go. Producer Charlie is pointing out that back at the start of the season, everyone was saying, Haaland's missed sitters in the community shield. It's not going to work. Yeah, and Darwin Nunez played really well and, yeah. and he was going to be better than him. Feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? Harlan didn't even catch his strike cleanly and it still flew in. It's just, you know, people keep saying it's cheating, but if, if you can, you know, kick the ball sort of incorrectly and it's still so powerful that the goalkeeper can't get anywhere near it, mm. it does feel a little bit, a little bit unfair. Um, good for Grealish, obviously. First time he'd started since the second game um, of the season. Be interesting to see if he can put a run together. Um, but Wolves-wise, you mentioned the, the red card, James. How much was that mm. amplified by Conor Cody's performance the next day? It does seem extraordinary that, that Bruno Large decided to to get rid of him. And that, you know, that red card, getting rid of Cody, the, the injury to Kaladzic, these are all things that tend to happen to teams who could possibly get relegated. Well, there are only two points above the drop. How worried are you for Wolves? Um, not very, because I need somebody to take one of the three places so Forrest have a less chance of getting relegated and also I predicted that they might so yeah not not, not worried at all Did actually you, if I'm, I'm brutally honest yeah <laughs> right <laughs> Sasha uh, I was going to say about Grealish uh um, when Grealish took it past a couple of players in the centre circle and some of the things he did, he really reminded me of Hvicek uh, Varacelia. So, um, you know, like a really? very expensive version of him. Uh, you know, the skillful hmm. midfielder who pops up everywhere. He's mm. like all action. Uh, not as good as Hvicek, as obviously, but, uh, you know, maybe Grealish is moving in the right direction. 
I just love the fact that the first goal and third goal were kind of like carbon copies of each other with De Bruyne making the run outside and kind of like putting the cross in and just kind of the those combinations when you see Foden, De Bruyne, Grealish and Haaland in full flow. It's just absolutely frightening. And and it was 3-0, but it could have been so much more because there were a couple of times they got into the penalty box and they just almost start like, no, you score today. No, you score today. It gets a bit ridiculous. Yeah, Man City. Erling Haaland, who... I think has been kind of written off as a cheat code stroke force of nature stroke whatever other epithet you want to hang on him. But there was an interesting little kind of window into how he manages to be so deadly. And it was about the number of times he glances round per per second, essentially. It's, I think his numbers were, he does it you know, 0.5 glances per second, whereas you know you, your average striker would be about the 0.25 or something. He's, he's just constantly got his head on a on a swivel and is, is mentally adjusting as such. Do you mean um, scanning? Because I've seen scanning. People... That's it. Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've I've not really seen this with strikers as much, but I've definitely seen. Um, I think his name's Gears Jordet. Do like um, Twitter threads on this about oh, like yeah. Kevin De, Kevin De Bruyne being really good at scanning, um, and those central midfield players who make passes you can't quite understand how they've done it, and it's just them constantly being aware of of what's going on around them. So you're an exceptionally good football player essentially if you constantly look around what's going on around you, which sounds easy in principle, but to actually do when you're under pressure from so many players is is. Yeah, like a remarkable skill. So the fact that mm. Haaland or Haaland is doing it at that that rate is exactly why he suddenly appears in these positions and defenders have completely lost him. He also handed in his training top to the kit man as opposed to throwing it in the fellow's face as the rest of his teammates did, which I think garnered him a lot of love. He did, uh, he, he did push the camera though. Did he? Yeah, yeah. at half-time when uh, they were coming off the, the cameras watching him and he just like shoves it. Nice, nice. All right. Erling Haaland, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, there we go. That is Man City who are breathing down Arsenal's necks as we head into the international break. Thursday, we'll be back. Looking forward to all the exciting fixtures we've got coming up in the Nations League and who's in which squad and all that kind of thing. So do look out for that. Of course, before that, as previously mentioned, the European edition will be rounding up a particularly colourful weekend across Europe. Sasha. One last note, shout out to Shoya Nakajima, who got sent off after approximately mm. 15 seconds after coming on for Antalya Spore. I think reducing his mother to tears. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I looked up, um, I thought, oh, maybe this is a young man who just arrived, you know, making, the, making his debut. He's 20 years, eight years old. He's been in Europe with Porto for quite some time. He should not be doing that. But Matt, uh, over to you. The winner in that game for Adana Demirspor, who are currently top of the league uh, in Turkey, or maybe the clinching goal, the third, was scored by Brit Asombalonga, mm. who basically slalomed oh. through the opposition um, and, you know, put the cherry um, on a 3-0 win. Uh, and the manager of that particular side, actually, maybe, James, you, you might want to cover this in the European show, is Vincenzo Montella. I was just wondering, how are Montella and Pirlo seen on the Turkish adventure. Well, Pirlo's having a miserable time at, at, at the moment. He's down, I think, if he's not in the relegation zone, he's just on the edges of it. But uh, but yeah, the, the the Turkish Super League is, I mean, it's just an extraordinary, I think previously regarded as a kind of where are they now depository, but uh, it's taking on dimensions way beyond that. Mm. Excellent. All right, well, that wraps it up for this edition of Totally Football Show. Many thanks to Jay, Matt, Sasha, producer Charlie, and you listener. We hope you'll be joining us throughout the week for other Totally offerings. And now from all of us here, it's goodbye. 
You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.